0: Or once than something others taunt me with having knelt at well curbs always wrong to the light so never seeing deeper down in the well than where the water gives me back in a shining surface picture me myself in the summer heaven godlike looking out of a wreath of fern and cloud puffs once when trying with chin against a well curb I discerned as I thought beyond the picture through the picture a something white, uncertain something more of the depths and then I lost it water came to rebuke the too clear water one drop fell from a fern and lo, a ripple shook whatever it was that lay there at the bottom blurred it blotted it out what was that whiteness truth a pebble of quartz for once then something
1: the second music by Annie Lightheart now I understand that there are two melodies playing one below the other one easier to hear, the other lower, steady, perhaps more faithful for being less heard, yet always present. When all other things seem lively and real, this one fades, yet the notes of it touch as gently as fingertips, as the sound of the names laid over each child at birth. I want to stay in that music without striving or cover, If the truth of our lives is what it is playing, the telling is so soft that this mortal time, this irrevocable change, becomes beautiful. I stop and stop again to hear the second music. I hear the children in the yard, a train, then birds. All this is in it and will be gone. I set my ear to it as I would to a heart.
2: Manet refuses the operation. Doctor, you say there are no halos around the streetlights in Paris, and what I see is an aberration caused by old age and affliction. I tell you it has taken me all my life to arrive at the vision of gas lamps as angels to soften and blur and finally banish the edges you regret I don't see, to learn that the line I call the horizon does not exist, and sky and water so long apart are the same state of being. Fifty-four years before, I could see Wren Cathedral is built of parallel shafts of sun And now you want to restore my youthful errors, fixed notions of top and bottom, the illusion of three-dimensional space, wisteria separate from the bridge it covers. What can I say to convince you the Houses of Parliament dissolve night after night to become the fluid dream of the Thames? I will not return to a universe of objects that don't know each other as if islands were not the lost children of one great continent. The world is flux, and light becomes what it touches, becomes water, lilies on water, above and below water, becomes lilac, and mauve, and yellow, and white, and cerulean lamps, small fists passing sunlight so quickly to one another, that it would take long-streaming hair inside my brush to catch it. To paint the speed of light. Our weighted shapes, these verticals, burn to mix with air and change our bones, skin, clothes to gases. Doctor, if only you could see How heaven pulls earth into its arms and how infinitely the heart expands to claim this world, blue vapor without end.
0: Like any old teaching worth telling again and again and again, the parable I'm telling today, the story of the fingers pointing at the moon, has many versions. And one, the Buddha Siddhartha Gautama, is teaching a group of his followers on a moonlit night. He points at the moon and says, all I have taught you is just fingers pointing at the moon. The truth is the moon. Follow the truth, not the teachings. In other versions of the story, the teacher is a Central Asian Buddhist monk named Bodhidharma, a Chinese monk named Huneng, and, and an unnamed elderly Japanese nun. Martial artist Bruce Lee says it to a student in the film Enter the Dragon. Each version has a slightly different meaning, but all encourage the hearer to seek the truth without distraction. In some versions, the, tr- the teaching is more about the limits of language than the limits of teaching. One teacher says, truth has nothing to do with words. Truth can be likened to the bright moon and the sky, and words in this case can be likened to a finger. The finger can point to the moon's location. However, the finger is not the moon. To look at the moon, it is necessary to gaze beyond the finger. This story is particularly popular in the Zen or Chan schools of Buddhism, which are a form of Buddhism with roots in China and Japan. And this is a part of Buddhism that is particularly suspect of language that knows the limits of language when it comes to the spiritual quest. Zen practitioners have been known to say that if you can put the truth into words, it isn't really the truth. And I shared this idea with our world religions class that met on Wednesday afternoon, and one member of the class said I should preach on this idea. And I think a sermon, 20 minutes of words, might be the worst tool to use to really get at this but I shall try today. The teaching of the fingers pointing at the moon is about seeing things properly, about aligning one's thinking to cut through the illusions of life, the illusions that we so often project before us. The teaching encourages us to know the truth as it is, not as it's reflected in words or teachings or other efforts to describe that truth. Metaphor is the best way I know to talk about this, whether it is the finger pointing at the moon or the metaphors presented in our poems this morning. In Buddhism and other wisdom traditions, especially ones with roots in India, the spiritual life is about developing the clarity to know things as they are, to see the world as it is and not how we would like it to be. Metaphorically, this might mean getting ourselves still enough to see past the surface of the water in a well, the image that Robert Frost gives us. It might mean hearing the second music that subtly plays through all of life that Annie Lighthart describes. It might mean following the fictional example of Peter Claude Monet and the Lisa Mueller poem and refusing the operation. Recognizing the blurred vision of cataracts that makes everything join together is truer than the crisp lines and finite edges of so-called perfect vision. In truth, Monet had one of his eyes operated on and refused the operation on the second, a fact that lends itself to even more metaphors. And there are real limits to all of these metaphors. Whether they are about seeing or hearing, they are all rooted in physical ability. And we know that physical ability is not necessary to do spiritual work. One does not actually need to see or hear to know the truth. But I searched for other ways to get at this this week and couldn't find language that isn't rooted in physical ability. It's one of the limits of English, I think. We talk about seeing the truth, or hearing the truth, or sensing it in some other way with our bodies. And so metaphors like this have their limits, and I try to use them sparingly. But our language contains so many metaphors rooted in physical ability. And today, I just could not figure out another way to get at this. Back to the fingers. This is a powerful teaching that is worth lingering with. The Buddha telling his followers that his teachings are just fingers pointing at the moon, not the moon itself. The teachings are just guides toward finding the truth oneself, not the truth, echoes so much of what he taught. He told his followers that what he said was true only so far as it was useful and discouraged people to take anything he said on faith alone, but to see how it fit with their lived experience. Do the teachings and techniques make your life better, give you more meaning, make it easier to get up in the warning? That is why they should be followed, not because the Buddha said so. Buddhism's symbol is the wheel with eight spokes, which is the bottom center image on our quilt. And that image talks about the, the eight, eightfold path of the ethical life. That is why there is eight spokes. And as one might expect of a tradition that encourages people not to take things on faith alone, Buddhism traditionally has no creed or catechism or any documents like that. But A white American convert to Buddhism decided it was important that there be one, so he wrote one himself in the late 19th century. Because all religions need a creed, he decided. Separating the finger from the moon is also about seeing things correctly, not mistaking the third hand glow of the finger for the light of truth. And much of Buddhism is about training the spiritual eye to see things as they are, about waking up to truth, about becoming enlightened. This is done in a lot of ways, through meditation, through ethical living, through spiritual practice, like mantras, or making mandalas, or sitting with koans. There's so much worthy of your attention in this tradition. And I'm going to jump to one of the most challenging teachings for me, personally. And it's about a pattern of thinking and communicating that most of us hold. Almost every branch of Buddhism teaches that there is no such thing as a personal I. There is no self, there is no soul, there is no essence of us as individuals. The words I or you don't really mean anything in themselves, but it's a shorthand that we use in our language. The shorthand for the amalgamation of things that make us who we are, including sensations, thoughts, matter, perceptions, and consciousness. There is no enduring I, no enduring personality. The language we use makes us think that there is some I-ness of some part of myself or ourselves that binds us together to who we are when we were six and who we will be until we die. And Buddhism would tell you that that is all an illusion. That speaking or writing or about ourselves as though there is some particular essence that endures from minute to minute or day to day or year to year is all an illusion. It is a finger. It is not the truth. We need to gaze beyond this language to understand the truth. I find this idea so challenging, and I offer it up as a challenge. As Unitarian Universalists, we seek meaning in many sources. This does not mean mean you need to believe every idea you come across, but sitting with ideas that might be unfamiliar and challenging, seeking to understand them, and letting that wrestling inform your thoughts going forward is an important religious practice. I invite you all into this wrestling. And remember that the Buddha reminds us that teaching is only true so far as it is useful. So let that be your guide with all of this, with all that we do. And like any worthwhile metaphor, the fingers pointing at the moon can be used to mean many things in many contexts. The first time I heard the phrase fingers pointing at the moon, it was from a Unitarian Universalist colleague. She was complaining about a fight about religious language that had sprung up in her congregation these sort of debates about language of reverence happen from time to time in unitarian universalist congregations they are usually about the words we use when we gather on sunday do we use the word worship for what we're doing do we use the word god what about prayer or religion or church and on and on and on with all of the theological words you can think of. And you all here at People's Church are usually really, really gracious about this. Some of you let me know when the words I use do not sit right with you. Or the text of a hymn is just not something that speaks to your soul. Or maybe soul wouldn't be the right word you would use. I don't know. And you usually begin by asking me what I mean and what I'm trying to get at, what the finger is pointing toward. And it's a really interesting conversation, almost always. Sometimes I adjust my words, and sometimes I don't. But it's usually a really fruitful conversation. And we get the chance to understand one another better and sort of get to the moon instead of the fingers. And often your questions help me really think carefully about the language that I use, the imperfect tool that it is to communicate truth, and leads me into greater wisdom and greater compassion. And that's not the thing I'm talking about that my colleague was living with. Um, She was talking about an all-out fight in the church, but I think they probably wouldn't call themselves a church because that was one of the words that was up for debate that day, about the words they could say together. And there were dictionaries and etymologies being used as weapons against one another, and people keeping check marks in the order of service about how often certain words came up. And there were meetings after meetings trying to get to what can our common language be. And she was lamenting that they just weren't doing anything better with their time, because there is so much to do. Just think of how that energy could have been better spent. And so in the midst of this, my colleague was yearning to help the congregation see that they were fighting about the fingers, and at least they should start fighting about the moon, because that is the true and deep and hard work. The words that we have are so limited in their ability, and English, every word has connotations either for individuals or groups that we don't always want them to have, and But they're the words we've got. And it's hard to move forward in that. And this minister longed at the very least for her community to fight about the truth and not about the words that point and gesture towards it. And it's not just Unitarian Universalists who borrow this metaphor and use it for their own purposes. A few weeks ago, as Nathan Danison, who preached here last week, And I met to talk through the logistics of our various services and what might be good messages for our communities. I mentioned that I'd be preaching on this teaching. And he said, for me, as a Christian, I think about the Bible as the fingers and the moon as Jesus. He decides which part of the Bible are are worth holding up for reverence by discerning how and if they point to the life, ministry, and redemptive work of Jesus. Though I doubt all of them would use the same Buddhist metaphor, many liberal and progressive Christians approach the Bible in this way, as though it is the fingers. To worship the Bible instead of of Jesus is idolatry, they would argue. Idolatry is worshiping the wrong thing. And I know that not all of us think of ourselves as worshipers, and that's fine. But we all need to hold something at the center of our life, that core ethical teaching or worldview that helps us live the life that is worth living, the life of integrity. And we need to make sure that it is the moon and not the fingers. And that's hard. It's so easy to fall into the trap of worshiping the wrong thing, of putting the wrong thing at the center of our lives. David Foster Wallace a white American writer, has spoken about this better than anyone I know, anyone I've read, in a commencement address to Kenyon College in 2005. He said, this, I submit, is the freedom of real education, of learning how to be well-adjusted. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. Because here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of god or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, You will end up feeling stupid, afraid, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. He continues, Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, but they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into, day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware of that that's what you're doing. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings, because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom all to be lords of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. This kind of freedom has much to recommend it. But of course, there are all different kinds of freedom, and the kind that is most precious is the kind you will not hear talked about much in the great outside world of winning and achieving and displaying. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and effort and being able to truly care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad petty, little, unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom. Wallace reminds us that it is easy to see the fingers and other things that don't matter rather than the moon, the truth. It takes constant effort to keep ourselves, our hearts, our vision focused on what matters most. So many of the forces in our world, be they consumer capitalism or nationalism or our own internal tendencies toward inertia, try to keep us focused on the fingers, on what doesn't matter as much. We must strive to keep our energy focused on the moon, the truth, as best we understand it. I'm going to leave you with one final image today. It is of a Buddhist temple in Japan. And had I thought of this more than a few minutes before the service started, I would have the actual image. But you're just going to have to create it in your mind. In most Buddhist temples, a statue of the Buddha holds the central place, the place of reverence. And in this particular temple, instead of a Buddha, There's a statue of fingers pointing at the sky, reminding all who come to focus their attention on the truth, not the teachings, not the person, just the truth. So may we distinguish between the moon and the fingers, the teachings, the teachers, the techniques, and the truth itself. May we recognize the limits of language and seek to find deeper understandings of one another and the world despite those limits. May we know the world as it is, seeing below the surface of the water, hearing the second music, knowing that there are no finite edges, that all are bound together in the web that connects us to all that exists. May we train our hearts to expand infinitely
2: to claim this world. May it be so, and may we make it so. Amen.